0: To behind the Lens. Let me play with my audio here since I can't hear myself and when I can't hear myself that's problematic. Um, as my mother always said, the day anybody can't hear me, we have a real issue. Um, I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, uh, uh and this is Behind the Lens.
1: Is that better in your headphones?
0: Yes, yeah. I, ter- I turned it up a little. Okay,
1: yeah, because I fixed it over here too.
0: Oh, well, thank you, Brian. Just some production notes over there. Just, just, yes, we'll let everybody know. Brian is doing his job. Thank you. So I can hear myself. So we have a fun show today, kicking off not only baseball season. Yay! You know, we need like a fan cheer or something for that one, Brian. But uh, we've got some incredible guests today. First up, uh, sometime in this first quarter hour, uh, Dion Taylor, writer, director, and... (laughs) Okay, for baseball and for Dion. I like that. For baseball and for Dion. Um, Those of you who are regular listeners uh, have heard Dion on the show before. Uh, I first had the pleasure of meeting him a couple years ago at L.A. Film Festival with um, an immensely dramatic film. Uh, It was dark, thematic, uh, racial uh, divisiveness uh, called Supremacy. And, uh, it has been a love fest for Dion and I ever since, uh, now he going from one extreme to the other of heavy dramatic thematics. We now have meet the blacks, which opened on Friday, which is raucous, riotous, irreverent, the most politically incorrect film you could ever hope to see. And you laugh from beginning to end. So Dion will be joining us, uh, to talk about uh, going from one extreme to the other and bringing a, uh, the comedy talent that he has in the film, led by Mike Epps, is just um, outstanding. And if we have enough time in the show, you'll also hear some clips of my exclusive interview with Mike uh, from the other week. Also, we, at the half-hour mark, we should have uh, documentarian Gail Kirschenbaum with us to talk about her film, Look at Us Now, Mother. Every mother and daughter out there needs to see this film. It is it is also, it's funny, it's poignant, and it's about uh, a journey of going from mommy dearest to um, best pals, best buddies, and a truly wonderful mother-daughter relationship, and the trials and tribulations and, and love and laughter along the way. And Gail is so much fun, so I can't wait for you to hear her talk about uh, Look at Us Now, Mother. But first... I think it's time to play ball, almost. Brian's queuing things up. No. No?
1: We have 619 days,
2: 12 hours, 56 minutes, and 20 seconds to go until Star Wars Episode 7.
0: Well, that, that and we needed to know that. Yeah. We needed to know that. We and, have the
2: weekly update.
0: And, of course, what I'm missing right now uh, is the press junket for The Jungle Book. Uh, which I had the pleasure of seeing on Friday night. And all I can tell all of you is it is a bare necessity of life for 2016 that you go see The Jungle Book when it opens later this month. Uh, We'll be talking about The Jungle Book in two weeks, I think. But uh, right now, heads up, it is a technological marvel. John Favreau has done an amazing job uh, by incorporating and paying homage not just to the Disney animated version of decades ago, but to the actual Rudyard Kipling Kipling, uh, Jungle Book stories, of which there are so many, and we see new elements incorporated into this photorealistic CGI live-action blend. It is a true stunner, and uh, for those of us old enough to remember, it will have you wondering, is it live or is it Memorex? Uh, But now can we play ball? Okay, fastball. I am just enthralled with this documentary. You may have heard Alex Ruiz and I talk about it a couple weeks ago because he is also a big baseball fan. Fastball boils down to answering the age-old question of who has, who throws the fastest pitch in baseball. And the documentary goes all the way back into the 1930s uh, with the first pitcher, Bob Feller, the heater from Van Meter whose was the first time a pitch had ever been attempted to be the speed to be calculated. And it was in a race against a motorcycle. Um, Bob Feller pitched faster than the motorcycle went, you know, fast forward a little bit. And then we get into the days of Walter Johnson, who was known as the big train. And he was the first one where the speed of his pitches were calculated based on the Remington rifle test. Uh, and he was clocked in at 83.2 miles an hour with the ball uh, throwing at go, traveling at 122 feet per second. But, you know, Jonathan Hawk is an amazing documentarian. He is known for his sports documentaries, sports specials. He is multi-lauded with Emmy Awards. Uh, many of you may recognize a lot of his NFL work, uh, specials he's done on NFL. But now he moves into baseball. So, of course, when I got a chance to sit down and talk with Jonathan Hawk. I'm mean, going to ask him, what led him to do to baseball, and particularly fastball?
3: Well, Thomas Tull from Legendary Pictures uh, gave me a call one day, and um, he had done a music documentary. You know, he makes these blockbuster films, you know, The Dark Knight and Inception and Hangover movies and, you know, Man of Steel,
4: et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and... But he's uh, a
3: huge fan of documentaries, and so on the side, he he has done uh, a number of documentaries, including "It Might Get Loud," which was an amazing music documentary. He
0: did. That's one of my all-time faves.
3: Oh, uh, well, David, Davis Guggenheim, who directed that, of course, you know, won an Academy Award and all that. Yep, "Inconvenient Truth." Davis and I are old friends, and um, so Thomas was talking to. To Davis and said he had a a sports idea, and Davis said, "Well, you have to call my friend uh, Jonathan Hawk. He's he's
4: you can want to talk to him if you're doing a sports doc." So uh, Thomas
3: called and and uh, flew me out to L.A. and and I discovered that you know he's not just a producer who likes baseball, but he is a true believer. And, you know, that's why he made 42. And that's why he's on the board at the hall of fame because he really loves the game in, you know, in the way that I was raised to love the game in the way it sounds like you were raised to love the game. And we decided that we would try to make a film that would be the film that every fan would want to sit down with her family every spring and put the dvd in and remember why we're so happy it's april 1st
0: (laughs) what led you to the idea of pitching and the fastball because there are so many ways you could have gone with this
3: yeah you know it was it was thomas's idea that he thought that you know we're, we're sort of living in a golden age of the fastball and there's something primal about it. Mm-hmm. There's something, and I think the line we came up with together in the film is, you know, a, a primal battle between a man with a stick and a man with a rock. Yep, and that. So that that was where we started, and we said there's there's something very basic, very fundamental to the human experience. To see what is going to happen when two people square off with a ball on a stick you know a rock and a stick or a ball and a bat and uh, what we discovered through our process of talking to Hank Aaron and Nolan Ryan and Justin Verlander and Derek Jeter and and Doug Harvey the great umpire who was so amazing and uh, you know the scientists at Carnegie Mellon who helped us understand what's really happening during those 396 milliseconds? Mm-hmm. We we came to discover that uh, that what's happening at the distance of 60 feet six inches, a ball thrown the very fastest a human can throw it, without his arm flying off from the you know the force of you know to Object the ball to that speed. If it, to to move it any faster, you, your arm would fly off, or mm-hmm. the elbow, or the, the shoulder just would need too much force. And uh, so you've got the 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 absolute limit of human capability on one end, and then on the other end, at at precisely that distance of sixty feet, you know, give or take an inch or two.
0: there is in fastball. For all you Dodger fans out there, this is the final season. You get to hear Vin Scully. uh, But for a really priceless piece of baseball history, within within the confines of fastball, there is amateur footage that was shot of the night Sandy Koufax pitched his perfect game in 1965. Vin Scully called the game, the gentleman filming only had enough film to take it through three innings. Now, Excerpts of that are Jonathan has included in the documentary. But, of course, as, you're, as you start watching Sandy Koufax pitch his perfect game, you need to see the end. Well, in lieu of not being able to see the end, what Jonathan did do was get the radio broadcast and Vin Scully's live call of the ninth inning of Sandy Koufax's perfect game. So it, it will give you goosebumps as you watch it, especially in the context that this is Vin Scully's last year as an announcer for the Dodgers. So I can't encourage you enough to see Fastball. It is on VOD right now. It's available on other platforms. It is in limited theatrical release as well. And, yes, for all my fellow Philly fans, there are interviews with Mike Schmidt in here. God knows we can't have a baseball movie without Mike Schmidt. So it's It's at the top of the, of the hit list, top of the batting order, uh, Fastball. So while we wait for Dion to call... Let us move on to another amazing film uh, and performance, uh, The Dark Horse. The Dark Horse uh, comes to us from James Napier Robertson. Uh, It is based on the true story of Genesis Patini, uh, of Maori descent, lived in New Zealand, uh, suffered from severe bipolar disorder, and he was a speed chess champion in his youth due to a mental breakdown, he was in and out of institutions for decades, but there was a point where his life finally turned around. And that's really where the dark horse starts is with that turnaround. Um, And we see Genesis Patini have a purpose in life. Now there was a 2003 documentary by Jim Marbrook that was done. If anybody gets a chance to see it, it is fabulous. It's very hard to find. Um, But in this case, Cliff Curtis steps in and takes on the role of Genesis. And I have to tell you, this is a tour de force performance. You, it is rare you will ever see any actor embrace a role, embody a role, become a role with as much heart and passion and authenticity as Cliff does when he becomes Genesis. Uh, for the first time in his career, he employed method acting lived as the character of Genesis for months and months, and learned how to play chess, which, as he told me, included thousands and thousands of rounds of speed chess. He is now obsessed with chess. And the day that we interviewed, he had his chess set all set up, ready to have a lunchtime match with his former director, with Jim. Um, it, is, it is something that you have to see it to believe it. And I don't think I've ever said that about a performance. Um, And this coming fresh off of Cliff playing Christ in Risen. Uh, And being in in fear of the walking dead. So we have seen him at every end of the spectrum. But this performance is Genesis Patini. You will not see. The very few times in your life will you see a performance like this one it is the stars have aligned and it's pure magic so I had a chance to talk to Cliff about this once in a lifetime role and here's what he had to say but this one uh, you've outdone yourself with this performance
2: yeah I'm very proud I mean it's like it's a once in a lifetime I don't know if it's going to happen again but uh it's probably the greatest challenge I've ever been set as an actor and as an artist and And I'm really gratified to feel very blessed to have been given the opportunity. How did this part
0: come to you? And then how did you embrace it? I know you got very method with
2: this one. Well, originally, I didn't think I was right for the role. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really see myself. I thought I was really intimidated by the role. I don't really understand how you could convey mental illness or, you know, the physicality of the guy was so different from me. I knew nothing about chess. There were so many things to the equation that I thought, I don't know whether I could really, I don't know how to approach it. It was the director's suggestion to to take a method acting approach, which, again, was even intimidating. I was like, I don't know how to do that (laughs) stuff. (laughs) You know, I'm a working actor. I kind of, like, turn up, show me the lines, I hit the marks, and I'll be professional. But Mm -hmm. living in the character for months at a time is like, I didn't even know how that was possible. So the first part of the equation was I had to get an agreement from the director and the producer that I had to take the physicality off the table. I was not keen to, like, put on all that weight for health reasons. And I just didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to really understand who the man was Mm -hmm. and not be concerned about the superficial aspects. The fact he had no teeth, that he was, you know, massively huge. Um, And... You know, it's like, well, his hairstyle or what he wore. I just wanted to understand how it was that he affected the people the way that he did and how he helped people, how he overcame his obstacles in life. I thought the most important thing for the story was to somehow inspire and uplift people and to show the love and compassion that he was able to convey through through the way he lived his life. I kept feeling hope from you on the screen. There was never a moment, no matter
0: how manic or how crashed... Jen may have been there was never a moment I did not feel hope emanating from you on that screen
2: oh thank you yeah and that was really what I wanted to focus on was that and like how do you over- overcome those kind of obstacles and like the man was literally homeless he lived under a bridge for three years for years at a time there was one time he got out of bed he couldn't get out of bed he suffered about a depression we couldn't get out of bed for years yeah, you know, I was like, this man suffered.
3: Mm.
2: He suffered deeply in life, but we don't want to make a movie about suffering. Right. We want to make a movie about overcoming um, these obstacles in life, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and a story about hope. And, and And where does that come from? Trying to understand that. Where does that sense of hope come from when you've got nothing? It was completely impoverished. And really what it was is he found a sense of purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And his purpose was not to think about himself, but to think about others. Mm-hmm. And those kids saved him, you know. Those kids that he helped, that he saved, they saved him. Mm-hmm. And in helping those children, he saved himself. He gave himself a purpose um, mm-hmm. to... to uh, give hope, to bring hope into okay. their lives and to bring hope into his own life. And it was a really, you know, I think it's a very beautiful, moving story. And it's a privilege to focus on this very tiny story. Because I think, I know for a fact, there are people all around the world and communities everywhere that are doing this kind of work. They're helping the old. They're helping the infirm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're helping young children, the underprivileged. And they're doing so... They're not getting paid, they're not getting acknowledged, you know, people aren't giving out awards to these people on a weekly basis. These people are doing it from a place of grace and from love, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and they really do help so many people. And so the privilege for me in taking on the role is to focus on that, this one story, which is a metaphor for the many people Mm -hmm. that help others around the world.
0: And that was Cliff Curtis talking about now. And and apparently we're having some phone trouble here. I know that Dion is trying to, they're trying to call in. And for whatever reason, the call is not connecting here. Uh, So why don't we take, oh, wait, this could be it. We're blinking again. We're blinking again. A Very elaborate phone system here, people. So please bear with us. Am I ready? Oh. Dion, my love, are you there? Hey, I'm here. Hey, honey, how are you? We so dim. I'll tell you. What was the box office number for this weekend?
4: 4.2. Very nice. 4.2 million. And we had the highest per screen average of an indie film for the entire year. Oh, my God. And our per screen average was only second... To Batman versus Superman.
0: Oh my God, that's amazing! I am, yes. I am thrilled. I am thrilled. I'm you, thrilled too. Well, you know how distraught I was when I was seeing some reviews that were out there on the film.
4: <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You know what? I, I was distraught too. But here's here's the thing. Here's the thing you can never you can never look at any of that because you know what i think is the biggest problem problem with critics what the biggest problem the biggest problem with with and not not i'm i'm saying i know this you critique and do what you do but you do what you do from a completely different mindset right mm-hmm. some of these guys you go and you watch a movie for what it is you watch the movie for the camera you watch the movie for the for the performances But what you don't do is, if you are not clear on what that world is, you can't critique it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. So, so so for me, when I seen, I I won't say any names, there's only two people, right? (laughs) When I see, when I see these two people critique this movie and they just go in there and they write the worst thing that they could possibly write about the movie. And then they say it's Mike Epps, and it's all these B and C level actors. And first of all, you're offending the culture mm-hmm. because you don't know who those people are. You don't know how big they are in the communities, right? Right. So to 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 African American people, Gary Owen is not B level. Michael Blackson is not B-level. Mike Tyson is not B-level. These are household names for us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, and and I feel like it it would be almost as if I say to myself, I'm a, a, a music critic, and I say, and then I go bash a Kenny Chesney album. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the problem. I, I don't know Kenny Ches. I don't know country music. I don't know that world. So I how could I critique it? So anyways, I just think it's a misstep that's taken often. Um, and it's terrible when you have people do that, but then 98% of the cinema score of people coming out of the theater is like, oh my God, I want to go see it again. So no worries, Debbie, it's okay.
0: Well, and you know, the minute I saw the film and I emailed you immediately, even before the publicist, I mean, I laughed my ass off from beginning to end. This is not for the faint of heart. It is, is politically incorrect, but culturally authentic as it comes with the humor, with the humor, the parody. It's fabulous.
4: Yes, yes. And we're getting, we're getting, we're getting that, all like hundreds of thousands of that pouring into us. And that's why the movie had the highest per screen average. That's why it is I think uh independently is the number one independent comedy released this year. That's why it's going to continue to grow into next weekend. And this is why we do these movies, Debbie. We do them, you know, when you're a filmmaker, I think your, your job is to stay true to what it is you're doing. And um, that's why I did this movie. I wanted to make something raunchy, fun, raw, Unapologetic, and I wanted to make something that you could just go in there and really just put your hands down and go. This is funny, as funny as hell.
0: And and that's exactly that's exactly what it is. And I don't care if you're black, white, pink, green, purple, polka dot. It's fabulous. You will
4: laugh.
0: Uh oh. Do we? Yes. Lo- yes. There you are. I'm here. Yes. Can you to, to give the audience an idea? I want them to hear you describe what the premise of Meet the Blacks in is because, you know, ever, I've talked so much about supremacy over the past year and a half um, and the heavy dramatic thematics of that film. This is totally the opposite end of the spectrum.
4: Oh, man, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is completely the other end of the spectrum. Meet the Blacks <laughs> is <laughs> so funny. Well, because- Meet the Blacks. No, it's funny. No, but, no, here it is. It, yes. I love the Purge movies. I think they were incredible. I love that the hook of those movies, which is very simple. One day a year, all crime is legal for 12 hours. Right. <laughs> to me, that was like the coolest thing I had heard in the last couple of years. It's like completely a different way of looking at a horror movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just thought to myself after I seen the first one and then I seen the second one, you know, after you get done being scared and thinking about all the fun stuff and, like, man, how crazy would it be if that really happened, then you kind of go into another place in your mind where you're like, dude, this would be funny as hell if it was a black family. Like, what would a black family do in the middle of a purge, right? And, you know, it's two takes on that. You could either have a guy like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get every, I wish somebody would come up in this house. You could get that guy, right? Or you could get the guy, like, who's going to pretend like he's going to do something, but he's scared. Right, mm-hmm. and um, that's the take I wanted to do with, with Meet the Blacks, and I tell you, man, it is funny. If you haven't seen the movie, anybody in your audience, if you have seen it, if you haven't seen it, it is really, really funny, and uh, what we wanted to do was basically build that world. We wanted to put the black family, which is Carl Black and his family, in that world. Um, he is a young he's – a, he's a man who has had a wife – uh, he's lost his wife or lost the, the mother of his kids. He's now remarried uh to Zulai who plays the character uh her name is <clears throat> her name is Lorena and they have you know he has two kids from a previous from the previous marriage and basically they moved to Beverly Hills and what they don't know is on the day that they move to Beverly Hills is the day that the purge actually begins. And uh from there it is comedy. Carl Black, the lead character he has done a lot of things in his past who have made him shady. Not because he's a criminal; he just is an everyday guy who's tried to find side hustles and different things that he could mm-hmm. possibly do to basically get to Beverly Hills. And uh, he soon realizes that all of the people that he has conned or messed over over the over the course of the last couple of years have now come to purge him. So that's the setup. Uh, It is really, really fun. Mike Tyson, I think, steals the movie. (laughs) George Lopez is great. And uh, to my surprise, Tiny, who is the wife of Mm -hmm. T.I., she has become a huge hit with the urban audience.
0: Wow. Well, of course, you know my favorite in the film. Outside of Mike, outside of Mike Epps, my favorite is Alex Henderson.
4: Oh, Alex.
0: You know, great. Alex... Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr. But what you also do <laughs> is, with this parody, you pay homage to some of the greatest horror movies of all time.
4: Yes, definitely. You know, we, we we wanted to throw it back. You know, me being a horror guy, I wanted to make sure that I did do that correctly. So I wanted to make sure that I did handle The Purge correct. So I tried to stay true to the beats of the original Purge.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: we also throw back to Friday the 13th. Uh, I just, I just wanted it to be done correctly, uh, in my own way. Uh, and I think we, we, we were very successful with that. For me, the whole thing is, look, as an independent filmmaker, we are absolutely lucky and blessed to be able to even make a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, we made this movie for one million dollars. And when I tell you, you don't get no money. You don't get any rest. You are slaving over the camera. You're slaving in the editing room. I know what that process is. I've been through it multiple times. So for me, this is like the biggest dream come true. Not because the movie is funny and people love it. It's just the fact that you go through this process and you, and you, and you dedicate your life to film. You dedicate every ounce of your body to trying to do this. And when you have a breakthrough like this where you could actually get a movie out, on a thousand screens, mm-hmm. and not only do you get it out, it opens in the top ten in the country. It's like, it's um, it's unreal, and and it's a true testament to being very passionate, being very loyal to the craft, and, and basically just believing in God that, you know, something great will happen. So for me, you know, if you're out there and you're listening to Debbie show, which I love her to death. Uh, and you're an inspiring filmmaker or you are someone who is, you know, maybe you're a big-time filmmaker, I I don't really know, but if you're an inspiring filmmaker or someone who's trying to get into this, just stay true to what it is you're doing and don't stop. Don't stop pursuing that. Don't stop believing in that. Don't listen to anyone that says, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that or that's a stupid idea because oftentimes we hear that so so much in our industry. So my note to you this morning on Cloud9 is to (laughs) – pursue and push and god will give it to you when you need to have it but don't stop
0: well you know and something else you know so many people they think of comedy and and a parody or a spoof and they think that the film is going to lack technical merit that's something that you did not sacrifice on this film you and your and your cinematographer john connor you guys really have some beautiful technical elements contained within your visual grammar of the film Notably, as you as you consistently do, you make great use of color. Color is very important for right. setting They're, mood yeah. and tone yeah. with you.
4: yeah, it's it's actually it's actually and I think we discussed this before, uh, you know being an African American uh, uh, filmmaker and then shooting African American talent is often very hard in dark in dark environments, right? So for instance, in the movie Meet the blacks, uh Mike Epps is what I like to call, like, he's, he, he's a he's a light-skinned guy, right? So he's more fair-complected, brown-skinned, but then playing opposite of him is someone like Charlie Murphy, who is a very, very, very dark-skinned guy, right? So what has to happen is when you are in these kind of worlds where you know, we have this classic scene where it's Mike Epps against Charlie Murphy in the kitchen, and obviously it's the purge, so that means all the power has been turned off. Right? Mm-hmm. So being able to light a scene like that becomes over, over, over complicated because you're trying to light Charlie Murphy, you're (laughs) trying to light Mike (laughs) then at the same time, you're trying to have them both live in a dark space. So what John did, uh, which was absolutely incredible, is we kind of came up with this method where we did floodlights in the house. So the idea would be like there's an emergency power light that comes on, and then basically we would be able to illuminate the talent that way but then what we had to also do is be really crafty and basically shoot like shards of light upwards you know against mm-hmm. charlie murphy which would kind of like come off of a you know of of a uh we use like a um a flashlight that was on a counter different things like that that would allow the audience to still see them but at the same time you know keep you in the mood of the fact that the power is off and i think that was really really cool Uh, in terms of how we lit the movie. Mm -hmm. Then we did a lot of stuff where I thought was really cool, which was an independent gag, but at the same time it was something that was used to kind of morph and give you a bigger feeling than the movie, which was smoke. Um, I think being able to kind of use smoke in different scenes of the movie, uh, in a horror movie, is always kind of cool, because obviously it's classic, people love that. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, in this type of movie, it did really good because it brought the texture of the film up. So, in other words, it gave us the grittiness, you know, that, that you want to have. Oftentimes, when you shoot these, uh, these these, these, these high-definition cameras, you can't get the grip because they're so clean and they're so beautiful and everything is so... The picture is so clean, You, mm-hmm. you just want to muggy it up a little bit. And I think Smoke was able to do that in this movie for us to where... When you see the scenes like Charlie Murphy, when you see the scenes like uh, Mike Tyson, uh, those scenes actually come off really, really good filmatically, like they feel thick and heavy. Mm-hmm.
0: It's, it, there's a great cinematic texture to the film. And that's something that surprised me because I know you shot Supremacy on film and now yes. you, you move to digital with this one, but you didn't sacrifice the visual mm-hmm. texture.
4: No, not at all. And and I'm a I'm a film guy. Like, I mean, Supremacy was 16 millimeter. I'm like a huge, I'm a huge film guy. Like, I mean, I think everything I've shot has been film up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I had to, you know, obviously go digital on this is because we didn't have any money um, <laughs> and we did have cash jumping in and out. And I had to rely on the fact that the great thing about digital is that you could basically turn the camera on and just let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not have to worry about, you know, reloading and doing all those incredible things you have to do with the cam- with, with film. So, yeah, for us, that was the, the fine for me was trying to figure out how do you shoot this thing digital and, and, and get all the perks of being able to let the camera run, but then at the same time, how do you really dirty up the picture uh, and make it feel a little bit thick or a little bit more cinematic Mm-hmm. Uh, because to me that's always been the issue with, with, with high def is, like, just how clean it is. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you want to make this type of movie, you don't want it to look like Star Wars. Yeah, I mean. You, know, well, you want it to you want it to be ugly a little bit.
0: Well, and you know me. You know I, I am a huge lover of film, of, you know, film and what it brings and that texture and that visual grammar and that layer of grain and grit that is more in keeping with the mind's eye. Of what you really see in nature with the sun filtering onto something or clouds rolling in. It's not pristine. There are little bits of specks and things in the air and film gives you that. But you and that's something that, as you mentioned, the smoke that you bring in, not only does it harken back to the classic universal horror films and the hammer films, but it really it helps thicken the atmosphere.
4: Yes, it does, and and, and it actually it, it saved my life a bunch of times because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of the stuff you have to do when you, like I said, we shot this movie for a million dollars. I think my I think I shot it in 13 or 14 days. Um, but what the smoke was able to do for us was also kind of band-aid rooms and mm-hmm. areas, like, in other words, it allowed me to use another area you know, reconstruct another area that I had used once or twice in a film before, but now I can cover it with smoke just to get that one mm-hmm. scene. Um, so it was kind of cool stuff like that, uh, With Uh you know, which are all kind of like director's tricks. You know, you figure out creatively on the go how you want to build something or, you know, how you could actually use something twice or three times without letting the audience know. And, you know, I think smoke gives you one of those bullets. You know what I mean? Like, oh, mm-hmm. we just filled this whole room with smoke. <laughs> and, and walk through here and then they won't know they're in the same room you will know, have it, no it, clue it, it was good. yeah it was good it's good that way
0: well i can't thank you enough for calling in and joining me again today
4: this has been debbie so, this you been don't so ever have to tell me thank you i love you to death you are the most incredible person that you know that i've met in hollywood seriously and uh You are a part of my family, so I will always be on this show no matter what happens with me. But I wanted to also tell you thank you so much for um, your support. Uh, Thank you so much for your words of wisdom over the last year or so. And uh, I I say this to you every time I see you. I I really, really, really owe you a lot uh, for what you've done for me career-wise with Supremacy. You was the first person to put... Uh, pen the paper and say what you thought about that film and it opened up doors for me dramatically and uh, now as we endeavor into the Hollywood world of box office and flashy lights you know I just I'm just happy to have you on my team to help push me and give me guidance so I thank you so much for everything.
0: Uh, well you know that I am there for you forever.
4: Thank you. And if you and if you are listening to this show if you want to laugh Go see the funniest movie (laughs) of the year, Meet the Blacks. (laughs) Mike Epps, Mike Tyson, George Lopez, Gary Owen, and guess what else we did? We put the iconic Paul Mooney in the movie, baby. You like Richard Pryor, Paul Mooney? You got to go see this.
0: Yep. Incredible. All right, my love. I will talk to you soon. We have to go have drinks or lunch or something.
4: Yes. On me. Okay. Thank you.
0: Bye.
4: Bye.
0: And that was the wonderful... Dion Taylor, and right now joining me, I am so thrilled. Hello, Gail Kirschenbaum. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I am thrilled. Thank you so much for calling back. We were having a little trouble with the phones earlier, so Dion was late and things got pushed back a little bit, and I didn't want you sitting on hold forever.
1: That's okay. No problem. How are you doing?
0: I am fine. How are you doing? I'm good.
1: We're actually um, now, mom and I are up in Boston. And it is snowing here.
0: Oh, my Um, God.
1: Yeah, it's really coming down. Yeah, we were just wondering if people are going to come out to our screening tonight here. But it's beautiful. It's like a winter wonderland. I I do love the snow.
0: Well, see, that's a perfect time for mothers and daughters to go out and bond. They can huddle together to keep warm. They can go out and shop for new coats and scarves. This could be a great bonding experience on the way to the theater. Uh, Absolutely. They can make a snowman together, a snowwoman together. How's that? See, we've got answers for everybody. We will solve all of your problems (laughs) right here. That's right. They don't have to go anywhere else. No. Well, I am so thrilled that you could join me today. I mean, because you know I love this documentary. I mean, there is so much heart to it, there's poignancy to it, but there is so much laughter. And there is something in there that every mother and daughter on this planet we'll see and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. You know, what what led you, because this is a very personal story, you really, you don't shy away from anything in the relationship between you and your mother.
1: No, we're, um, I mean, this movie was really made uh, to help people. That was my only motivation. Most of this footage was, deeply personal, my own documenting my life, you know, like video diaries and even my own personal diaries from childhood. I have some of that in here. So there was only one motivation, and that was to help others because I saw the pain people were in due to the reaction to that funny short I made some years ago called My Nose about my mother's relentless campaign to get me to have a nose job. And when people stood online to thank me for the film, Tell me they love my nose and they couldn't stand my mother and how how could I talk to her and I'm thinking, Well, you've hardly seen anything in this little light film and then tell me their story and I heard so many people's stories and I said, Wow I mean it didn't have to be about a nose, whatever their pain and suffering is from their childhood trauma. So yeah, I, I became a woman with a mission uh to make a film that would help people and apparently I I I I cut the film together in a way that is speaking to people and yes there's plenty of laughter I mean I know people cry in the film it's an emotional journey but I believe laughter is really healing and very important
0: and that is exactly what you when the, the film went when it ends you are laughing you are smiling the journey is the emotional journey is complete and you see this great future of hope and happiness with with some some bickering back and forth but no wire hangers no, and it's, and
1: what I hear from people inspiring. So that's that's I, I. What what really moves me is when I get emails or people reach out to me through social media and say, "You have no idea how your film changed my life." I went home and I called my mother. I hadn't spoken to her in ten years. Or I decided just to give my father and I reached out to him. Mm-hmm. You know that I, if only I heard it from one person. It would have fulfilled me, but I hear it. Many times over. Oh, did I tell you, you know, the film opened theatrically in Florida, and we open theatrically now in New York and L.A. on uh, this Friday, April 8th. Susie Orman, you know Susie yes. Orman, right? Financial so guru. Her, financial exactly, guru, Susie Orman. Who I love. Um I mean, I don't know her, but I love her work. And um she she apparently lives in southern Florida because I suddenly got a tweet, I've gotta get more on Twitter myself, and she tweeted out to her one point six million followers that she just she tweeted out thanking for the film, saying it helped her a lot and then telling all her followers to go see the film. And it was really funny because somebody responded to her saying, "Oh, you must have meant my name is Doris," and she says, "No, <laughs> I saw that film. I didn't like it. I meant a, look at snail mother, which was really sweet, and we had a little back and forth, so you know that was just her going to her local indie theater, I mean, and wow. finding it, and that was very moving, very, oh. very moving
0: yeah and this this is this is why I love you know. It's watching independent films like yours, like Dion Taylor's, because it's these little gems that pop up that mean so much to so many people. And all it takes is just one one voice to get other people to take notice of it.
1: Yeah, so I'm praying, you know, we'll get more other voices on board too, because, you know, the movie star, the actress Mayan Bialik, mm-hmm. she, she, um, connected to it also, and she's been putting it out in her social media. You know, I I didn't make the movie for, 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 I made the movie for everybody. It's a human story. I made the movie to help as many people as I could help.
0: And and it, it is a very human story because we all have parents in some form or another, be them biological, be them adoptive, be them, you know, aunts who are like parents, uncles who are like parents. So there is something here everyone can connect to. One of the great things about this documentary is the fact that your father also chronicled a lot of stuff with 8 millimeter home movies.
1: Yeah, I feel very lucky about that. Yeah. So
0: you have so much of your life already on film that you could go back and draw on and bring into this. And f- for good or for bad, to relive moments.
1: Yeah, no, I feel very blessed. I mean, he got the eight millimeter camera in the fifties and my life was documented from my mother's belly onward. And when he stopped shooting, I started shooting. So I guess, you know, people have pointed out to me the similarities. Uh, you know, he was, and you know, he didn't only document in footage. I have volumes and volumes of photo of albums and he was so organized what's that?
0: Oh no, I'm listening. I think we just he had. had
1: the, yeah, there's a little crackle here. Behind it, he, he would write the date, the name, the place, the people. So they're so well organized and archived, uh, which I'm not well organized and archived like he is. So, yes, I have a wealth of material, which I do feel very lucky about.
0: Yeah. And that's something when you told me before the fact that he had documented and identified everything, because I think about the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pictures that my own family has when my father had a dark room in the house when I was young. He didn't label anything.
1: So yeah,
0: so it's kind, yeah. of, it's kind of a crapshoot trying to figure out what's what. But it's amazing yeah. when you look at things, how much you remember. But then you get into extended family, and without identifying mark- markers on them, it, it's virtually impossible. And you look and you go, oh, that's so nice. I wish I knew what it was.
1: Well, you know, I'm like the family genealogist, and I've actually started years, decades ago and stopped decades ago. But now, I started before we even used computers and before, you know, when you had to mail away to the Church of the Latter-day Saints in Utah and get records. But now I put everything onto these programs that they have Mm -hmm. for genealogy. And what's great is you can include pictures, and people send me pictures. So you can annotate them and because I don't know who a lot of these people are, but the key is to grab people before they're long gone and get them on tape. I mean, for anybody who's interested to do this, I don't know if you remember in the film, but there's my grandmother's voice.
4: Mm -hmm. I never,
1: you know, it's one thing to see silent video of a person like eight millimeter and also photograph. I never knew I had my grandmother's voice. I never knew I'd ever hear her voice again. But because I was doing my genealogy decades ago, I always walked around the little audio cassette, and voila! I had a phone conversation with her recorded, mm. and I was able to incorporate some of that in the film. And more importantly, it was it was so emotional to hear her voice again?
0: Yeah, and yeah, you know, and I I related so strongly to that because I would save you know voicemails when relatives, when my nephews were all young or when my grandmother would call, I still have the first time she got an answering machine and she didn't really understand what an answering machine was. And she left me a voicemail message trying to figure out if she was doing it right. And <laughs> it, it is, and in, in, her, in her great, you know, 96-year-old German accent, I mean, it is hilarious. Every time I look at it, I, can't, I listen to it, I can't help but smile because she's talking and she thinks it's me and then she realizes debbie my debbie are you there are you there and oh my god <laughs> it's but all these little gems and watching debbie wait i have to i'm stopping i have the same story years <laughs> ago
1: my grandmother she only knew from boy uh answering me from doctor's office it's not that you know people like her granddaughter had one she did the same thing and she called back three times and she was so annoyed she called my mother saying I don't respond to her (laughs) yeah
0: yeah no that I mean it's just but to see how technology it's great and you see this unfolding and look at us now mother how over the years as you and your mother and your mother finally opens up about things you see how the world has changed and how, but how some mindsets don't change with it, and they kind of, it's a great touchstone to the past in many yes. respects.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel very lucky about the the ability to, well, one, I'm, I'm lucky that I have my mother, and I'm lucky my yeah. mother was willing to do this because I don't know anyone else who has a mother who would reveal themselves like my mom has. Plus, I'm very lucky I have a very funny mother. I mean, an article just came out here in a New York paper saying her mom's a born star. (laughs) That's the headline. So she's very funny, she's very smart, and very willing to expose, be exposed. And who do you know? I don't know anyone else that's a mother like that. If my mother...
0: No, my mother would never have agreed to do anything like that. Never never right. and uh, your your mother is a star she is hilarious
1: yes <laughs> yeah and they come out of her quickly it's like where did you get that it just comes out of her it's uh, they're just she's just uh, they're they just yeah yeah she could do stand up she's very she funny she could
0: you know now how did you go about to, because you have a definite construct from a filmmaking standpoint, this isn't just random stuff that's out there in this documentary, people. This is, it's a beautifully told life journey unfolding. How did you go about finding this construct and this timeline? And of course, your 250 hours of footage you went through? Mm hmm. You mean, how
1: did I actually um, figure out how to structure yeah. this story? Yeah. Well, thank you for realizing that was what was extremely challenging and difficult. Um well, I wanted to I wanted to set the tone very quickly that there would be humor i I wanted to set immediately what this film was going to be about, what this journey is, what i'm trying to accomplish so that my audience would know what my mission was as I'm setting out, and also to create the tone because um it's a tough topic it's you know it deals with a lot of Difficult things and abuse that happened in my childhood and, you know, it's, it triggers everybody's own emotion. People are watching the film, but they're, they start going off to think about their own story. You have no idea how many people repeat. A woman in Florida, she's seen it eight times. She oh just sent God. me a text and she brings a group every time. It's hysterical.
0: Oh my God. So,
1: yes, I know it really is. Oh my, she says she can say the words now. Um, yeah, it's very funny. But but what I wanted to do at the get go was also set the tone that there would be humor and that um, there would be you know I could be irreverent and Mom is a last a minute so I wanted to get that up like right away mm-hmm. and through my voiceover and then and one other thing that was really important is I wanted you to see Mom and get to know her a bit before I brought you back to my childhood. And then the other thing was, how am I going to take you back to my child and not sound like a victim? Because who cares about a victim? You know, just someone complaining about their childhood is not attractive at all. So I remembered, I had one of those light bulb moments that I have kept diaries, you know, since I'm a little girl. And I, I found them. I didn't know they were thrown away. That was a challenge to itself. And when I found the box, I sat down and reread them. So that was a gold mine for the storytelling, Mm -hmm. and it was really, I wouldn't call it a gold mine, it was an emotional mine for me because I ended up rereading them and reliving it, and it really, it brought me right back. So I was a pincushion from that point on. Mm
3: -hmm. So,
1: yeah, so that that was a vehicle. And then as time progressed, as I was telling the story and you were going on this journey, I really wanted to make sure I had humor in there. Um, I wanted to have scenes that were humorous. If I, I felt like you were bogged down, it was really emotional. It's time to lighten it up, you
0: know? No, I mean, the flow, there is a, a definite flow to the documentary. Uh, you know, it ebbs and flows, but it never stops. It keeps moving, and you take us on highs, lows, and it is beautifully constructed from a story uh, from a story standpoint and a cinematic standpoint.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate the cinematic part because, you know, I shot most of this film and nobody knows it, meaning if I am my, my two hands in a shot, I didn't shoot it. But <laughs> but most of the stuff, people cannot believe I shot it. And, you know, for those filmmakers out there uh, and, and inspiring filmmakers, a good deal of this footage was shot on a little consumer camera with a camera mic. You know, they always say never do that. But I just, you know, if something popped up in my life and I wanted to get it, I just flipped the camera and turned it on and it was small and it was in my pocket or I whipped it out of somewhere Mm -hmm. and I made sure I was close and there wouldn't be background noise so the audio would be fine. But you know, the other thing, Deb, is that, um, you know, I didn't actually go, I didn't come from film school. I'm just a person, I was actually an artist. But one of the things is is to go for the emotional impact of a scene, and there's footage I shot of mom in in uh, France where she's the most emotional she ever was, or I've ever seen her and in this film and it's the audio's not the best, so I ended up just um subtitling it mm-hmm. but it it flows because you know you can hear her a bit but you at least you're reading it but you're watching her emotion and that's the powerful part
0: you know and that, that's something that you know a lot of people when they're turned off by silent films or foreign films and i always tell them the the mark of a good film if you if, if it's a silent film if it's a foreign film just you know you don't need the sound if you see the emotion unfolding on people's faces if you can tell what is happening what they are feeling that is the mark of a filmmaker that knows what they're doing. And you do that so beautifully.
1: Well, thank you. And it's interesting because on, on the set of using sound, I don't come from a, a background in music or any education in it, and I can't read music. But I do, you know, on the, on the other side of what you're saying, uh, the power of the visual, I will say the power of the audio too, because you know, you can, the audio can transform a scene. Mm-hmm. However, you know, you score the music, don't score the sound effects. That can completely transform the mood of that scene. And I love sound design. I love working with music. And, um, you know, I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene where it's World War II and my father's in the South Pacific and, um, and there, you know, the bombs are going off.
4: Mm-hmm. And
1: I put on, beautiful romantic music and because it's about a love story behind you know about my parents love story they're separated by this war and there's love letters but you see all the bombs going off mm-hmm. Right?
0: I mean it's a great juxtaposition that you have when you do that but it's so emotionally effective
1: yeah thank you,
0: you, know, you- yeah I
1: I I think I, I I would say I'm a touchy-feely person and I think my work is I I I aim for emotion. I, I edit for emotion. I write for emotion. I want to tap into people's feelings and emotion. And I'm not a heady person, you know. I'm an emotional person. Mm-hmm. So I think in my work and I also definitely need humor, you know, so it's so my work I I, I use myself as a per as you know, I'm watching and I'm going with this I move away and even if it's me and it's my story. I move away, and I look at that me as third person, as if it's not me. And Mm -hmm. I go, do I care about her? Do I like her? I mean, I made many cuts before, and I had other editors working with me. And, you know, it it didn't happen overnight. It took a while Mm -hmm. to get get it to the place I was happy
0: with it. But see, you're one of the few people, you can actually look at it objectively rather than subjectively. It's very difficult. I, I've spoken with so many directors over the years and, and filmmakers, and they cannot remove themselves from it. Mm-hmm. They, they cannot be objective. And I think that is also a very key component to filmmaking. You have to be able to stand back and be objective.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is so important. I mean, I, I'm not here to make a film. This is not a vanity piece for me. In fact, one uh, reviewer... Um, Spoke to me, and he he gave me a big applause about one of the this, if you remember that fight scene I had with my mother during you know when I had surgery and recovering. And he, you know, some of my contemporaries in the business said, "Oh, take that out. You don't look good in it." <laughs> and I and I thought, you know, I'm not making a film for me to look good. This is about I'm not an angel. You know, I am not. I am a flawed human being, and mm-hmm. I need people to see. All aspects of me. I'm not here to vilify my mother, you know. I the apples fall far from the tree, and I've been damaged, as we all have, mm-hmm. you know. And so, I couldn't care less how I looked in, a, in the in the footage. That was the furthest thing from my mind. It was, is this making sense for the story? Are you understanding? I want I wanted my audience to see. Hey, you know. I, I, I have in some ways I am my mother now, and I, I have inherited some of mm-hmm. the good and the bad. So yeah, I my vanity was long gone. I, I mean I am lucky in the sense that I'm not particularly a vain person. I don't obsess over that. It's not. You know, I probably should be more vain and more. Mm-hmm. You know, stay more in contact. Uh, you know, care more about how I look, and I, I don't. Um, so yeah, I was all about: Is this going to help the story and help the audience? and help achieve my goals, which is to help people.
0: Well, unf- That's how I made my decision. Unfortunately, we are now totally out of time, and Brian is going to shut us off the air in about 10 seconds. Gail, Ooh. thank you so much for joining me today. You are welcome. An absolute thank- pleasure.
1: Yes, and if you can make sure your audience knows when we're going to be playing, that would be great.
0: And it will be on the video portion, scrolling along the bottom of the screen as well.
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Gail. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias for Behind the Lens.